Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Healing of the Nations podcast, your podcast on end-time events, religious liberty, Bible prophecy, and also history. And we have a very special guest today. We have Elder Eugene Pruitt. Elder Pruitt, thank you so much for joining us in a holiday of all things. I'm so glad to be with you, Peter. Thank you for inviting me. The privilege is ours. Elder, can you tell us a little bit about what you do in your ministry? Sure. So my wife and I moved five years ago to Malaysia, and there we have a, a system, a set of schools that are designed to train missionaries to work in Southeast Asia, which is the center for uh, the largest Islamic countries, the largest Buddhist countries, and the largest Hindu countries. And there in Malaysia, you have a significant blocks of all three of those religions right there in that country. So it's a good training ground for, for our students. And uh, that work brings me right into line with your podcast subject, Religious Liberty, because there are countries that are predominantly controlled by those three religions around the world that offer nothing like liberty. And I'm glad, Peter, that you and I live in the United States, a country that, at least in the past, has had lots of liberty, and in the future will have less and less. What religious liberty implications or situations are there in Malaysia that affects the work over there? So in Malaysia, if you want to reach out to a Buddhist or a Hindu as a Christian, you have perfect liberty to do it. But if you want to reach out to the public without any reference to who's listening, you must not talk about religion. And if you dare to reach out to a a Muslim person and tell them about the gospel, you have violated a law that can get you in serious trouble, uh, get you arrested and deported if you're a foreigner, or imprisoned or beaten if you're a local. Uh, it's uh, against the law, the constitutional law of the country, to try to share the gospel with, they even use the word gospel in their laws, to share the gospel with Muslims. So with these laws, how are we to spread the end-time gospel message to such a precious group of people? So I have an idea that I want to be a law-abiding citizen. But whenever I have two laws that conflict with each other, I always go up to the higher law. And Peter, I think God has given me the highest law, and that one says, go to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. So I teach my students to take no cognizance, no uh, knowledge at all of any law that forbids them of sharing the gospel, except to see those laws as a call to be careful and subtle like the serpents. You know, the wise as serpents, that idea. I would imagine, though, that there are some common points of faith, especially with something that happens to Muslims, that we could reach out to them with. Um, I try lots of things, but I'll tell you what I find to be uh, maybe the most effective is to take an interest in their nation, in their culture, and then to say to them, hey, I have a series of scripts or videos that are based on the prophets that Muslims and Christians have in common. And of course, the prophets that Muslims and Christians have in common happen to be the same subset of prophets that Christians have. And uh, so I'll share those with them by WhatsApp or Messenger and ask for feedback, and and that just works well. Um, Of course, I do have lots in common with my Muslim friends. Uh, I would never eat an unclean animal. My wife and I won't dance, and we don't uh, attend theater. 
Now, we are careful in our dress to be modest. It's important to us that we never have any sexual experience outside of marriage. There are just many things that Islam espouses as important that we see the same, but I often use those more as a, an illustration than as a way of bonding. What I mean by that is that many religions, for example, would say you shouldn't smoke, but very few religions provide power to allow the smoker to quit smoking. And so I would say to an Indonesian family that your religion and my religion, they both say that smoking is something you shouldn't do. However, about 80% of the men in Indonesia smoke, despite what their religion says, but maybe 1% of the men in my religion smoke. The difference isn't the teaching, it's the power. And that power shows where God is working. I would imagine that some of this demographic would have a negative perception of the United States. Would the United States and Bible prophecy and what we teach in Revelation thirteen eleven be an effective means to reach this group as well? Uh, so the good news is that I also have a negative opinion about the character of the U.S. in the end of time, based also on Revelation 13. So I don't uh, come across as championing the current government of the United States. I'm not there to say that my government or my president or the last president uh, are promoting wonderful ideals around the world. But what I will say is that this government was 200 years ago promoting real liberty. It was saying that everyone has a right to believe or not to believe. And uh, I want those ideas to be strong in my country, in your country, in every country. And I tell them this, Peter. I say any country that doesn't have religious liberty produces hypocrites. So that right there in Malaysia, there are many young atheists, but who all their life pretend to be pious Muslims because the cost to them to express their real skepticism is so high. And because they don't express their real skepticism, there's no chance to interact with them and to challenge their skepticism and to try to lead them to faith and confidence in God. And so it's just a tragedy that is produced when liberty is reduced. Now, does American foreign policy impact foreign missions in what you do and what American government policy does? Does that impact foreign missions? Uh, not maybe as much as you might think, and that's because it's highly counterbalanced by American tourist money. So, for example, if you go to Malaysia, uh, that country despises American political um, values, especially as they relate to Israel. America's support of Israel is just cursed anathema to Malaysian uh, politics. But... Malaysia loves American tourism money. So they just keep their, their political mouth zipped because they want to keep American tourists coming their direction. And so, yeah, it, not as much as you might think. Now, in the past four years, there have been many Seventh-day Adventists, or there's been a fair share of Seventh-day Adventists posting online that have been subscribing to American patriotism, and also an anti-Muslim bias. What's your reaction towards that? Does that impact us as a witness to the people in, in the world 
as we espouse American patriotism and anti-Muslim bias? When I think about my own patriotism, I think that I am a patriot in two ways. In one way, I love my government's constitution. In another way, I love the freedom I have when I'm here. I'm talking to you from the United States at the moment. I love these things. But I would never want to promote a patriotism that would be at the expense of the interest of foreigners, of visitors, of immigrants. Uh, It was a terrible tragedy for Yemeni people when Trump shut down immigration from Yemen, right as they were having a war, in fact. I want to say that great patriot movement in America that I see among evangelicals, it pains me when I see it creeping into Adventism. I'm thinking, do you know what you're doing? Do you know what you're saying? That here we are talking about a government that we know is going to be shooting us down soon, that has already tried to intervene and interfere with our religion, uh, even covertly, even during the recent wars in the 20th century. We don't want to be uh, getting involved politically with this mess. If, If whatever whether Biden or Trump was going to be victorious, I said months ago, this isn't my issue. Uh, My issue is the gospel. So if someone gets into this evangelical bandwagon that is anti-Muslim immigration because they're afraid that, uh, that Sharia law is going to take over the U.S., I'm saying, Adventist, don't get on that wagon. Sharia law is not going to take over. There's no danger of that. And every Muslim that comes here has a better chance to learn the gospel than he does if he stays in Iran or Iraq or Pakistan or Bangladesh or Morocco or Algeria or Egypt or Somalia or the, you know, it's better if he comes here. So, yeah, it really hurts me when I see it. And I've even heard this in Malaysia. I've heard Christians say, that we don't need to reach the Muslims because God is reaching them by dreams. Or in the UK, I heard someone say that, that they are like the Amalekites. They filled up their cup of iniquity, and so we don't have any more burden for them. They just need to die. And what I would say to both of those is, you couldn't make a more ignorant statement if you tried. The reality is, even the Apostle Paul, when he had a dream, was just sent to the church for the gospel. And he's one of the few people of all the thousands converted in the New Testament that was helped by dreams. The reality is, of the converts that we've had in our work, and I think God has helped me now to have converts in seven or eight countries that have no Christian presence to speak of, uh, I have found that Muslims are just as open to the gospel as Christians in the Bible Belt. They're not harder to reach, it's just a bit more dangerous. And uh, the idea that they're all lost or the idea that, that, that God is going to reach them without us, those are just both ignorant, foolish, dangerous falsehoods. Now, with this growing romance towards evangelical Christianity that some Adventists and, sad to say, some conservative Adventists are subscribing to, there seems to be a shift of our eschatology in that Marxism and communism will bring in the mark of the beast. What's your reaction to that? So in Revelation 13, where we find the mark of the beast mentioned for the first time, the issue is 
those who have it can buy and sell, and those that don't have it can't. And so what I see is that personal property figures largely in the end time situation. But what I would say to those Adventists who are getting on the bandwagon of communism, bringing the mark, or even of COVID bringing the mark, or even of um, climate COVID, change, global warming, right? I would say, have you read the chapter? What brings the mark of the beast is miracles. It is false miracles. And so for three years, people have been saying that it's this global warming conspiracy. That's what's going to take away our liberties. Well, then we come this year and suddenly one little unexpected pandemic has taken away four times more than global warming ever did in just a few months. And I would say, no, it's not COVID-19. It's not global warming. Who knows where those things are going and how they're going to develop? But we do know what's going to cause it. It's going to be caused by miracles. And we know what's going to be the t- issue of timing. That's going to be the ceiling. So if it's going to happen in 2021, it's not going to be because of global warming conspiracists or because of uh, the growing interest in some Democrats for a socialist concept of government. No, what's going to do it is that there are going to be people who are submitting to the seal of God. It's when the saints have been sealed that the winds are let loose. And it's when the miracles happen that the whole world follows the beast. And neither of these things uh, require that we find some political key or agent uh, on which to hang our fears or hopes. What is your view of uh, the great political divide that's happening in our church right now? Not even in theology, but in partisan politics. You mean like Trump versus Biden? Like, like I know what you're talking about. I've seen it all over myself. I think it is so poorly informed. It is so ignorant for people to think that the proper people in authority are going to be able to repress are going to be uh, the significant agents in pushing it. When what we've been told in inspiration is that the leading men in government are themselves perplexed beyond end to figure out what to do with the problems that they face. And of course, they have no solutions. Daniel 4.27 teaches, or excuse me, it's 4.17, that God places over governments the basest of men. So that's why I can't get involved in politics not one bit. Uh, the, the strongest statement I would ever make publicly about politics would never reveal to anyone whether I preferred uh, Democrats or Republicans or Libertarians. So Satan knows that we have work to do, and all he has to do to keep the work from being done is to give us other work to do. It reminds me of a poem I heard long ago that has, as some of its phrases, don't stop to stone the devil's dogs or to chase the devil's rabbits. The poem was called Keep at Your Work. And I think it'd be good if, as a church, we'd review it. Keep at Your Work, that poem, shows us that Satan's plan is to give us other hobby horses. It's to make us be anti-vaxxers or to make us be pro-vaxxers, to make us be mask wearers or anti-mask wearers. Uh, to, to make us be 
anti-Trump and his abuse of women and his dirty speech or anti-Biden and his abortionist ways and all of these burdens that we take up are at the expense of the gospel going forward. Uh, Let me try to say this in a more simple way. So here are a hundred people and one of them is an Adventist. All of them need the gospel and they need it soon. Well, among that hundred, there are four or five that the most useful thing they can do is promote climate maintenance. And there are two or three that the most useful thing they can do is fight against abortion. And there are four or five, the most useful thing they can do is try to reform financial systems. But that one Adventist there, if that one Adventist puts his energy into some of those other things, then he is wasting his time because what he ought to be doing is promoting the funeral's messages. And we can let those other people do those important businesses that know nothing of the three angels' messages. That's what I'd say about that work. In this election cycle, we've had prominent Seventh Avenue's ministry figures that have uh, openly showed that they were in those rallies and promoting a certain president. How damaging is that? It depends on where they're at. But let me explain what I mean by that. If I stand up and promote Biden or Trump, I plug the ears of 45% or more of the United States public. If I put myself forward for Trump, I close the ears of 45% at least that are for Biden. If I put myself forward for Biden, I close the ears of 45% at least that are for Trump. Why, if I put myself forward for those, I might even close the ears of 10% that are sick and tired of politics. So that there's just nothing I can do politically that doesn't lessen my influence. And that's why you won't hear from Jesus anything about Caiaphas or Annas or the the political intrigues of the temple. That, That just could not be on the table of his work to do without it messing up his efforts to reach everyone. Now, with this COVID-19 crisis, there's been a new interest in end-time events, and you've uh, produced a video in response to certain prominent figures uh, setting some sort of time or soft time setting. Can you tell us why you did this and why this is important? Oh, I sure got in trouble for that, didn't I? Uh, Yeah, so excitement about time is the kind of excitement that instead of producing Uh, loving evangelism, it produces erratic behavior. And that's why I love how early writings indicates that the three angels' messages is stronger than time, shouldn't be based on time. And so I've heard, yeah, some prominent Adventists who are trying to calculate jubilee cycles or the end of the thousand years, or I remember one uh, gray-haired man that was a famous evangelist uh, producing a book on Daniel that reapplies the 1290 and 1335 day prophecies. And what I would say to the followers of all of those, I would say, please find your motivation in the eternal loss that is facing people who don't know the message. Don't let it be based on time. If you get the excitement revved up about time, 
then you're in danger of destroying interest in the truth if the time you point out passes, which of course has happened over and 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 over. It's happened a lot. And don't take the risk. You can get right to work and be happy. But someone says, but we're not time setting. And they say, these men have not set definite time. I know what William Miller did. William Miller didn't set a definite time for the 1843 uh, end of the world. He said sometime on or before the Jewish year, 1843, which goes from the spring of 43 to the spring of 44. He never got it closer than, than a season or a year. And uh, even in 1844, after the first disappointment, it wasn't until a few weeks before October 22 that he adopted the seventh month movement. Kind of setting that God used in the 1840s to test his people is the very kind we've been told shouldn't happen again. And it was a kind that was based on not definite time, except for a very short period. It was not based on definite time. Well, you know how to get me going, Mr. Peter. Yeah, I have a burden on that issue. And I hope people understand that they don't have this narrow view that if someone teaches error, then everything he does is bad. Or if someone teaches the truth, everything he does is good. It's not that way with humans, Peter. So if I end up saying that that one of these prominent men has made a significant error in his teachings, that doesn't mean that the work he does is irrelevant or unhelpful. It doesn't mean that he hasn't been doing great things. If Peter says, uh, far be it from you, Lord, these things will not be to you, and Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, that doesn't mean that Peter's book shouldn't be read, or that Peter isn't a legitimate apostle, or that we shouldn't think highly of him. This idea that is a fanatical following of men that takes and makes a hero out of one so that everything he does must be good is a fanaticism that's going to get us in trouble. I hope those who are enthusiastic to listen to me and my messages will not be such that they will think that everything I say is necessarily true or right or good. And if they catch me saying something foolish, I hope they won't think that that invalidates other things I do. Humans just aren't so consistent as to be evaluated like that. It seems that we have an Adventist celebrity culture within our church. Myself, I was at one time before I truly committed myself to the Adventist message, I worked at a record label. And of course, some of my more prominent friends used to be in the music industry. And we always sat down and just were boggled our mind that there's a celebrity culture within Adventism that's parallel to the celebrity culture in the world. How do we fix that? Man, what a good question. What an impossible one to answer. Um, I think that those of us who are prominent need to be speaking out against it often and expressing our weakness often and admitting our mistakes as soon as we know that we've made them. Uh, I heard on the radio today, uh, Thanksgiving program, Evangelical, where a man talked about people dying, ladies dying on the Mayflower, uh, and a caller called in and said, wait, that didn't happen. And he uh, ended up describing how the Mayflower was protected from death on the journey, uh, largely. 
And, you know, the speaker who made the mistake accepted it so graciously, the public correction. And I just hope that those who are prominent would, would set themselves up to accept public rebuke gracefully. And, um, and I, I really don't know the answer, Peter, but I try to tell people often how weak I am. I try to tell them, don't just believe me. I tell audiences, if you think something I say is true, I hope it's not because I said it. I hope that what you're listening for is my data, not my conclusion. You want to hear my reasons and think them through. Because in the judgment, the question isn't, who did you pick as a hero? But how did you reason through it yourself? How did you see the, the data and inspiration? And... Um, yeah, take heed how you hear. I would teach people how to listen, to listen for the reasoning in a sermon instead of its conclusions, and in that way to make your own. Why are Adventists so vulnerable to conspiracy theories about Masons and secret societies and Illuminati and whatnot? There's a hard question, but I have a couple ideas about it. I think for one thing, because a lot of them have been brought in through those methods. That is, if we bring people in through speaking about the Rothschild and the Illuminati and the New World Order, then we're going to bring in people who are inclined like that. So this, of course, is big in Germany and in South right now, because the most efficient man bringing people into the church in those two countries, it's the same man. Uh, he's had his hand in these things for a long time. And so no surprise that people that come in are going to maintain those appetites they had before. But I think the other thing is that people don't really know the Bible data sufficiently to be motivated by it. They don't really know the real thing, and so it ends up bothering them, and they go off after exciting things. That's all I could figure, really, there's a devil. Maybe that's the big answer. Another controversial issue that has been hotly debated in social media among Adventists, especially this past year, is the issue of social justice. The term social justice is a dirty word, and there have been some African-American brothers and sisters of mine that have posted in social media their experiences on police brutality, and you had other Adventists posting that you know your experience is false and Statistics say it's not racist and whatnot. How should we be involved in social justice? So, yeah, I have to preach a sermon on this sometime, but I'm just putting it off. Um, Jesus lived in a very unjust society that was charged with terrible racism. The Romans were racist against Jews and Samaritans, the Jews were racist against Samaritans and Romans, and the Samaritans were at least racist against Jews. I don't know how the Samaritans felt about Romans. So you had serious racism there, and you had inequality. The, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't even do business with each other, and the Jews really had worked it out financially pretty well, so it was probably bad news for the Samaritans. And, of course, the publicans were with the ruling class, and they oppressed even the Jews. And so you had violence that was done by Roman soldiers as a way of enforcing their uh, 
residency of the land and uh, their occupation, if you will. So here you have one of the worst situations you can imagine, and in comes Jesus. And you know how Jesus dealt with it all? He dealt with it by being loving and kind to Samaritans, Romans, and Jews. He dealt with it by using uh, a Roman as his example of the greatest faith and a Samaritan as the example of the greatest love for a neighbor. So that Jesus, in his preaching and teaching, showed that he wasn't moved by the local prejudices. But also, Jesus did not get involved in lobbying the Romans for more equitable treatment of Jews, nor did he get involved in speaking to the Sanhedrin for better treatment of Samaritans. And he really, he did not join any protest by the Samaritans against the poor treatment that they received at the hands of the Jews. Not that we know of any such thing. I just made that up. But what I'm trying to say is that Jesus knew that the real cause of, of inequality and injustice socially is selfishness and sin. And he attacked those with the mighty power of God in the lives of individuals. So he worked to convert the individuals. And by converting his own 11, he saved them from hating Romans. And that's why Peter and Paul both preached to them. And he, in fact, instructed them to go to the Samaritans as soon as they were done with the seven years set aside for the Jews. Jesus worked among his believers to destroy prejudice and to promote the caring for and nurturing and helping hurting people but he didn't come at it from a political perspective. And let me say something else relevant. I would say that impersonal charity is flat charity. Let me try that say another way. If I give $5 to a stranger, that charity does little for the gospel. But if I go into the poor neighborhood and get to know people and get to know Shelley and I know why she's struggling, and she knows that I know it, and that she knows that I know what she needs, and I get for her a child seat for her car. That money that is given personally has power in it. So that we really have destroyed our, our social justice mechanism of charity by making our charity impersonal. And if we would be in the neighborhoods knowing people we could do a much more efficient job of meeting the needs of people. Would this approach also apply to the issue of abortion? Uh, So abortion is a tough one because there are two ways to stop it. One is to convince mothers not to have an abortion, and the other is to convince a government not to allow it. And it looks to me like the only one of those that has been effective in the last 60 years has been the first one. And that's the one Jesus would be doing. He would be working to get to know young mothers and to talk to them and love them and help them. And in this way, to prevent them from the cruel mistake of having an abortion. And uh, I think as soon as you put your hope in politics, it makes you inconsistent. So, for example, right now, our Supreme Court already was packed strongly by Trump. And it looks like it's been packed to the point 
where it already has enough conservatives to overturn Roe versus Wade. Yeah, I heard people who were on the Trump bandwagon in the campaign because of their hatred for abortion, when in fact the Supreme Court has already been set up for it. And even if Biden becomes president for four years, unless he stacks that Supreme Court with a bunch more people, that court is going to be on the side that Trump left it. I'm not really trying to make a political statement. What I'm trying to say is that we're much better off to aim at personal work than political work. As Adventists, we're a minority. We amount to about one out of uh, 250 people. So we never are a very large political power. But with the Holy Spirit working with us, we can have an incredible personal power. So let the million Adventists here get to work in the streets and let the evangelicals that don't know anything better, let them push on Roe versus Wade with all the energy they can. It's the one thing that they can do. But yes, of course, I wish that our church uh, would have reformed its statement on abortion before 2020, but I rather think it was improved this year, and we ought to give some credit where credit is due. We've made positive changes. What is the message that we should emphasize in this time in Earth's history as Adventists? So there's a message for the Church, and there's a message for the world. The message for the Church is the Laodicean message, which certainly includes righteousness by faith. And the message for the world is the three angels' messages, which certainly includes righteousness by faith. So if you're looking for one simple answer, it's righteousness by faith, but it looks different to those two. To the Adventist Church, it's a message that says, you're not converted, though you think you are. And to the world, it's saying, come out of false religion and put your energy and your mouth where the truth is making progress. And... Uh, yeah, that would be my short summary, and then my sermons on Audioverse might help you find the rest of it. And we'll definitely have those links in our description for all your sermons and messages. One final question. How do we get ready for Jesus to come? Well, that might be a final question, but it's not a short one. Uh, it is by doing the work that God gives us to do that we end up receiving the preparation that he intends for us to receive. So not by being an audio-verse junkie, but by reaching out to your neighbor. Uh, it's by doing the things we've been given to do that we are filled with the Spirit that prepares us for the second coming that's coming. I think you can see it quite easily, Peter, in Matthew 25, where you see when Jesus comes back, he doesn't even ask theological questions. He only asks practical questions. But those people that are called sheep there, surely they must have been ready for him to come back. So what were they doing? Well, I'll tell you, they weren't only taking care of the poor and the homeless. They were also studying their Bibles. They were also uh, practicing the reforms. But they had their mind on the work. And because their mind was on the work, the, the training God was put into the work was effective in their life. I don't know why this is coming out so awkward, but it's clear in my mind that if you give your children little things to do around the house, you're giving them those jobs, not because it's going to speed up the housework. It's because you're training them. 
You give them jobs that accomplish your goal for their character in life. That's what God does with us. He gives us jobs that match his goals for us, and his goal for us is to be ready. So the key passage for this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, where it says that, and, and may God cause your love to abound more and more towards each other and towards those that are without, even as our love is growing towards you, so that you may be blameless and without spot in the day of Jesus Christ. That was a loose paraphrase. I wasn't reading it to you. But what it says is that God wanting to prepare people for his coming goes about it by causing their love to grow. And their love growing and their service multiplying is what prepares them to become faultless before his throne. Elder Pruitt, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. We've been definitely blessed by the thoughts and observations that you shared with us, and you're welcome back anytime to be a guest as time allows. And before we close, can you say a word of prayer for us? Yes, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I want to thank you that there are people that care about truth. And I ask for anyone who listens to this, that you'd give them wisdom and discernment to know what has been said here that is helpful and true and what has been said that is off base or foolish or misguided. Would you please be both the author and the finisher of our faith? And I ask for that and that you would go with Peter and myself and keep us faithful. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.